This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, big news out of the Red Bull Air Races. And a clampdown on recreational drone use. Also, ATP applicants, keep an eye out. The FAA has a new checkride standard. And veterans get their wings clipped. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. This is Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Jim Moore, a writer that you work with online, uh, caught up with him. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Hamilton, an incredible guy, a great interview. Yeah, and uh, the reason why uh, Jim caught up with them was because they were in Connecticut on the jumping-off point, Ian, for the D-Day Squadron's DAX over Normandy flight. Cool, cool. So, yeah, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton, he's got this amazing background. He was uh, one of the members. In fact, he's the last surviving member of a group of 20 pilots and airplanes that dropped paratroopers ahead of the D-Day invasion. So a really key piece of history there that a lot of folks probably don't realize uh, he's got some great stories as a result. Absolutely. All right, so we'll bring him on in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about the news. And we got a lot to go through this week, actually. There's a lot of good stuff going on. First, though, a little bit of sad news. And this is that the Red Bull Aerises have announced just today, actually, as we record this, that the season is being clipped and they are done. That's right, Ian. Red Bull canceled the Air Race series effective after the 2019 season. And for American fans, we have already seen the last race on American soil. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, there are going to be a few more races, though, in in Europe and then maybe one in Asia, right? Correct. Race fans will have to go to Russia, June 15th to 16th. Oh, wow. Lake Balaton, Hungary. That's a long way to go. Uh, Hungary, July 13th to 14th. And the final event of this series will be in Japan in September, the 7th to the 8th. But big news for us here in the USA is that the Indy race is an air race that a lot of people have looked forward to, a race that was won by Michael Goulian last year, has been completely canceled. Yeah, that is that is sad news. And I think it's interesting. You know, we were we were looking at the schedule, and it's like, you know, Europe, I mean, I can understand it's like you save money, and so you kind of stay on the continent. 
But then to go to Japan, you think, man, why don't they just finish in Indian? I guess maybe that says something about the attendance or about the take-up of tickets or something. Perhaps. I will say this, that maybe it's really popular because 2017 champion Yoshi Moroyo from Japan will be the hometown favorite. So Mm. maybe that has something to do with it. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, it's really sad to see him quit. I mean, it is completely a Red Bull event. It's got that Red Bull style. So I know there's some hope that somebody will take up the sponsorship and keep it going, but it's it's hard to imagine because it is it is so tied to Red Bull and Red Bull's brand. Completely. And just to recap for folks who are not following the Red Bull Air Races, the series began in 2003. They've had about 90 races since then. But, Ian, there was a three-year hiatus from 2011 to 2013, and I just don't think the series ever really fully recovered after that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you remember in the early days, they'd have like hundreds of thousands of people along like riverbanks and stuff like that in Europe, and it doesn't seem like it has the same panache as it, at least the draw, let's say, that it may be used to. So yeah, I'm with you on that. That's right. And uh, we talked about Michael Goulian, who uh, in the past has been an AOPA ambassador. Well, also U.S. uh, teammate Kirby Chambliss. He's a a two-time winner in 2004 and 2006, and he was in a position to move up, you know, this year to second overall on the all-time wins list. And so that obviously will be very difficult to happen. And, uh, you know, they've, they've gone from a series high of 10 races in 2007 to, I guess, this year's total of four. So that's a pretty big drop in competition. Yeah, well, we're starting to see them go. But kind of moving on to new tech and to the future a little bit. Now, this is something I know near and dear to your heart, and that's um, drone flying. And I say to your heart is really more to your craft, which is uh, photography and a tool that, uh, you know, a lot of people are, are employing now. And so this is, is really hit you personally, as well as a lot of drone operators. And that is some new guidelines, I guess we'll call them, from the FAA around sort of recreational or prosumer drone operation. That's right, Ian. Now, these are, as you said, they were published in the Federal Register in May. You know, I don't want to, I don't think we can call them regulations yet, can we? No, no. And I think that is some of the confusion around this is that the FAA has put out this document that's, that's yeah, it's sort of a guideline, an operating procedure, but they're saying, no, 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 these aren't regulations. It's not a legal document, but hey, we need you to know about it. Right. And one of the statements written in this kind of suggests that recreational drone operators could be subject to enforcement action for flying in places permitted prior to the publication of the document. Hmm. So in other words, there's a change here that might not be well known by a lot of people, and that could get them into a little bit of trouble. Yeah. I know if you read the story that's uh, posted on our website on AOPA.org, you'll see that Rune Duke, who uh, manages this issue for us and who we've had on as a guest, actually, you talked to, he he expresses a little bit of, um, I would say, sort of consternation or frustration at this and, and the FAA's rollout of it because it is a little confusing. It's very confusing to people, especially people who are trying to maintain integrity with that. And I think there are a couple of key takeaways here, Ian. I made a couple of notes here on the story, and one of the keys that I noted was that the FAA retains broad discretion Mm -hmm. to penalize people who conduct, quote-unquote, careless and reckless operation by aircraft. It's no different than uh, careless and reckless in a single engine or a helicopter or anything of that sort, you know? Yeah, yeah, we know that, don't we? Yeah, but they did make a couple of provisions for the Academy of Model Aeronautics. So folks who are AMA members, we know that they fought long and hard to keep their recreational flying privileges going. And there are a couple of tips of the hat to that group there. So they could still fly up to the 400-foot altitude limit and uh, exclusion from controlled airspace. So that's somewhat of good news for those folks, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What, what else did you learn from it? 
Also learned that uh, another key change, and this actually affected me, as you alluded to at the top of the segment, is that in the past, you used to be able to call an air traffic control facility when you're flying within five miles of such. And I remember calling the Frederick ATC office here to let them know I was going to go up and try to operate my drone for the first time. And, of course, they said, yeah, whatever you want to do, that's fine. Just don't call us anymore. You know, we're kind of busy. <laughs> but that was the rule. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to call airports or ATC facility and let them know what you were doing so you, you know, could basically get the word out. Well, that's no longer going to be accepted because the law requires specific authorization, which cannot be done over the telephone. Huh. Interesting. So that was a key change, I thought. And another thing, what Jim Moore's written about this a couple of times, another thing is that there's definitely a requirement to keep the drone within the operator's line of sight. So there's a mm. lot of push to get beyond the visual line of sight, BVOL. Yeah. And so this is coming back and saying that, no, you need to keep that drone within visual sight. And then finally, you've got to steer clear of airspace restricted to protect military facilities and other sensitive areas, although guidance is very, very difficult to find on that subject. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all really good stuff to keep in mind. And I think if you go onto AOPA's website, as I mentioned, the story that's on there kind of lays it out in a little bit of detail. And you can read the FAA's document and, uh, and get some more insight there like you did. And it's definitely something I think if you're going to be a responsible drone operator and not just, you know, a hobbyist who's flying it in your backyard, it's like something you need to really be aware of. Absolutely. And then, Ian, now the next topic we're going to talk about is something you probably know a lot more about than I do. But we've talked in the past about the certification standards that have been revised over the past couple of years. And now we have a finalization on the new ATP standards that is effective June 28th. Yeah, so the ACS, the Airman Certification Standards, this is now, if, if you've been around aviation for a while, you might remember the PTS that you took a check ride with. That's the Practical Test Standards. The Airman Certification Standards are kind of the same thing. They are roughly for the same purpose in that when you go to a check ride, you know, this is the document that the examiner is going to use and it lays out the standard. But they have taken, the FAA and the, and the working group has taken all of the stuff that was in the PTS, all of the information that you need to know for the knowledge test and everything else, and they've put it together in this one document so that anytime you're going through the training, whether you're studying for the knowledge test or anything else, you can look at this document and say, okay, this is comprehensive and it's everything I need to know. And so they've been revising these along with stakeholder input, I should say. That's important. This isn't just somebody in an FAA office going to town on things. This is a whole stakeholder group, including AOPA and many others, that are helping to draft these. And then they do put them out for public comment. And um, the ACS one, I think we might have talked about this on the show, uh, went out for comment a few months ago, and now it's going to go live in June, as you said. So one of the key things with this ACS uh, standard for ATP, we're using a lot of abbreviations here, we probably need to get Rune back on the show. <laughs> but one of the things is, is that basically it standardizes a lot of the, the thought process, and I guess in the learning process behind the Airman Certification Standards. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of kind of part of that complete overhaul to get things in line with, with other guidelines that are already established and, and which we're already training to. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, obviously, a lot has changed since the um, ATP, PTS, there's some acronyms for you, came out and including, you know, a lot of emphasis on the 1500 hour rule and, you know, positive control stuff that's going on with things like Boeing and the accident that the Asiana accident that happened in San Francisco. And so I was curious. And so I, I compared the two documents because I was wondering what they would add to it in terms of skill set. 
And sure enough, they did add some stall prevention pieces to it that weren't in the PTS. And they are more detailed, more comprehensive stall testing than I think maybe ATP applicants were used to before. Oh, well, that could only be a good thing to get more familiar with that part of the flight envelope. I think that actually might be a good thing. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And it's installs in all kinds of different configurations, which um, you really should be able to do as an ATP applicant. At least I hope you can. You know, a lot of times it's it's focused on instrument procedures the ATP ride has, but um, now I think they're they're realizing that there's some basic skills that need to be reinforced along the way. So, if you are training to become an airline pilot, you're in that fast track. Get on that ATP ACS right away and make sure that you're preparing yourself for for what is kind of that doctor's degree of of, of aviation. Makes sense to me, and yeah, and we'll be right back. This next story, I just think is it's not something we talk enough about, and that is um, veterans who are you know cycling out of the military and into civilian life and using their their VA benefits, their you know the GI Bill. That has been an issue the past couple of years, and now there's a bill in front of the House that would limit the amount that they can use for flight training. Yes, Ian, and one thing that our um, podcast listeners might not know is all the work that AOPA does behind the scenes. In this case, AOPA and other industry groups co-signed a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy strongly opposing House Bill 1947, which would limit, basically cap flight training benefits for veterans. And so what does that really mean? And you and I were talking about this off show just before we um, did the podcast, and we kind of explained it to each other. And, and, you know, in light of the severe pilot shortage, this is really a bad thing. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's so many different angles to this. And I, I guess, we, you know, let me back up a little bit and talk about kind of where this came from. You would think that, you know, in Congress, it's all about supporting veterans, especially, you know, as a lot of them are still deployed around the world. But this actually comes from a couple of helicopter schools a few years ago that really fleeced the system. I mean, they were charging hundreds of thousands of dollars for these veterans to get their helicopter certificates to be able to to move on to a career. And they were using like turbine helicopters for primary training and just all sorts of crazy stuff. And so they started to look into this idea of, well, really, how much are we spending to train these pilots for civilian life? And as a result, they, uh, they started to implement these uh, pieces of legislation that they hoped would, uh, would cap that. And, of course, AOPA and, and many others say, now, wait a second. These veterans, they earned their GI Bill. And also, you're sending them to medical school and nursing school and everything else. So it's like, what's wrong with uh, flight school? Right. So it unfairly targets flight training operations versus if you wanted to get a law degree or, like you say, get your nursing certificate or anything like that. One thing that, you know, I don't know if a lot of our podcast listeners know this or not, but I have taken a couple of hours of training in a helicopter. It was in a two-person R-22, and that was about two to $300 an hour. And just over the weekend, I went flying for some photography in a Bell Superjet Ranger, and that bills out at over $1,000 an hour. So that's a very good practical example of just what you mentioned, Ian, about some of the flight schools that might have, you know, overtaxed the system. But I mean, why would you go you know, in a $1,100 an hour vehicle to train if you could do the same in something for 250 300 bucks an hour? Yeah, that's right. I think it was just a way for the schools to kind of make some more money. And unfortunately, it has had major impacts on the system. So AOPA and, and others, like you mentioned, sent that letter and said, no, wait a second, you know, it's like what we need is better oversight. And uh, maybe, you know, 
penalizing those bad actors, but everybody else is really doing it pretty efficiently, I think. Absolutely. And we owe it to our veterans. And, you know, we're just now coming coming off of the Memorial Day weekend. So it's even more on a lot of folks' minds. And even as the uh, the DAX over Normandy flight heads overseas uh, to perform that reenactment over, over in uh, Normandy. So we're, you know, we want to take care of our veterans. And absolutely, we need to fulfill the ranks of pilots. There's a severe shortage, as we mentioned. And Boeing predicted a global need of some 790,000 pilots over the next two decades, and that is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, absolutely. Now, hey, we got a theme running through today's show because I actually want to talk about that a little bit. In the context of the new gamma numbers, the General Aviation Manufacturers Association, this is, you know, we cover this every quarter. These are the uh, aircraft that are manufactured by uh, the GA folks kind of around the world. And uh, good news coming out of those numbers this uh, quarter. So, you know, it was pretty much good news all across the board with the exception of helicopters. Mm-hmm. But we've seen some increases in uh, in piston airplane sales. And you crunched some numbers, Ian, and you came up with a pretty good theory of what is driving this change. And, and I'm going to put you on the spot. What's that theory? Yeah, uh, well, I was curious because, you know, we were talking a lot about training being up everywhere, that, you know, all the flight schools are really slammed. You see the student pilot certificate numbers going way up. And, you know, we've seen, like, for example, readers of flight training going way up. And so, you know, all of that should lead somebody to believe that they need more training airplanes. And in fact, that seems to be the case, because I think last year, the first quarter, all the GA piston manufacturer airplanes that went out the door, there were 200 of them. And in the first quarter of 2019, there were 248 so you look at the, the typical trainers and you think, okay, well, that's uh, Piper and Cessna, right? So the Archer and the 172 accounted for 34, that 48 increase. So it's something like two-thirds of the total increase across the entire piston market. Pretty impressive. I think that's some good research that you did. I was very impressed with that. And, you know, we did also notice that Cirrus aircraft had a little bit of a change up in their market-leading segment, basically, they've been out the door, you know, leading a lot of the piston single sales for sure. But they were down about four aircraft in the SR-20 aircraft category. But, you know, that's a, their lower-priced SR-20. There is rumors that they might come out with some kind of a training aircraft to kind of replace that. But I'm just saying that's a rumor. But they also shipped more of their SF-50 Vision Jet. They shipped four more of those, delivered four more of those. And those are pretty high ticket items right there. Yeah, it's really interesting. My so my first blush at Cirrus was, man, they so they shipped 84 airplanes last year in the first quarter and only 80 this year and I thought, man, what's going on over at Cirrus? But it's like when you start to parse it down, it's pretty fascinating cuz like you said, it's like the SR22 is almost the same, the SR22T is almost the same, the jets up and what you find is that for those 84 units that they shipped last year in the first quarter, they build about $77.7 million. And for the 80 that they ship this quarter, so four fewer units, they build $94.5 million. So they're making more money on fewer airplanes, uh, which is, for them, really good news. That is interesting. And you, you also brought something up a minute ago. You know, Piper really turned the corner on shipping out their training segment. And they did just introduce the Pilot 100 back at Sun and Fun. But so far, they're up 19 additional aircraft over what they shipped last year in the PA-28 Archer segment. So that's pretty significant. It's a double of what they did last year already in that first quarter. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty amazing. And so even though, 
you know, totals up by 48. It's like you look across and most people are pretty flat. Um, the other exception to that, I'd say, is Technum. You know, last year this time, I think they sent what well, it looks like 45 out the door. This year, 51. So pretty nice increase there. We've seen just continued increase after increase with them. So that's good news. Technum is a pretty has a pretty deep lineup too. They have everything from LSAs to to their 2010 you know, twin, basically. So there are more of those aircraft out there than you would believe. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Anything else catch your eye? Well, we were talking a little bit about the Cessna 172 Skyhawk. They um, there are 28 of those that were delivered in the first quarter this year versus 13 last year. That's the, up about 15. I think that's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. And the only other thing I always like to keep an eye on, uh, this is totally off the wall, but I always like to keep an eye on the agricultural aircraft. And that segment just hums right along. It's not, you know, it's pretty steady. I mean, there's a steady appetite for these specialized aircraft. And Thrush is one of the leaders and has been so for a really long time. And, and they're holding their own right there as well. And, um, you know, the, uh, near and dear to my heart, Air Tractor um, as well. So there, yeah, there, there are a lot of billing numbers there, a lot of a lot of money coming out of those two companies because those aircraft are specialized and very expensive, but they do a special job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is kind of interesting too because you might think that they would start to taper off a little bit, like as the bigger drones come online. But it seems like that hasn't happened yet. Not yet. And uh, now I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I've never flown a, an ag airplane. Have you? No, I haven't. I haven't. They look like a ball, though, don't they? I definitely want to do that. Yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, that is just, I mean, you have to be such a precision pilot to deal with something like that. But they do have a lot of help these days with very pinpoint GPS to help uh, delineate the fields. And like you said, there's a lot of competition from the drone industry on that as things get more automized, you know. Yep. And I guess just to wrap it up here on the gamma numbers, I mean, we want to talk about BizJets. They were up by almost 7%. Turboprops were up by about 7%. So that's all great news. Rotocraft, though, not looking so good. And this is surprising to me because their training market, I think, is also up pretty decently. Pistons were down 14%. Turbines down 22.5%. So I don't know what's going on there. They thought they saw the bottom there, but I guess not yet. So hoping for a rebound there. Yeah, because Rotorcraft has been a bright point in the past, you know, ever since you and I have been doing the podcast, the Rotorcraft segment has been performing well. So that is unusual. Maybe it's just a a one-time-off event. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. There's one more thing before we move on. I was going to mention that the Aircraft Electronics Association also reported a double-digit increase in their first quarter sales. And so that's interesting, too. I wonder if... People are really retrofitting a lot more of their aircraft and getting on board that ADSB bandwagon. I would think so. I mean, as the mandate comes in, absolutely. And and you know, we've heard it's like you don't just go in for the unit; you go in and do the whole panel while you're at it. So I think that's all good news for AEA. Yeah, up up thirteen point two percent to seven hundred and twenty four million dollars for the first three months of the year. Wow, that's great. Well, hey, want to bring on our guest, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Hamilton? Uh, really interesting guy. Cool interview. And uh, like we said, Jim Moore caught up with him on, uh, on their way over to Europe.
During World War II, what was your responsibility? I was a first pilot on a Pathfinder C-47, and we had specially trained navigators and paratroopers that would drop in and identify the zone drop zones for the serials of troop carrier coming afterwards. So you were pretty much the tip of the spear. You were leading. We were the tip of the spear. Yeah. Tell me about that responsibility, how that felt when you finally knew, okay, we're going, this mission's a go. Yeah, we, it was, we started briefing in May 28th with sand tables with our paratroopers. And two requirements in the Pathfinders was one, the colonel tore up your instrument card when you joined and he said, I'll fly with you and give you a new instrument card before D-Day. And second was, you're going to drop in practice with the stick you're going to drop in combat. So we felt a different relationship with our paratroopers than the normal troop carrier pilots did. Because there were only 20 crews that went into Normandy. There were nine planes dropped Pathfinder troopers for the 101st, nine planes dropped paratroopers for the 82nd Airborne, and then two planes dropped paratroopers to set up the drop zones or the landing zones for the gliders the first glider came in right at dawn and by that time we were back home in bed so we were at the tip of the spear as you say yeah and, and take me back to that you're, you're you're firing up the engines i would imagine a sense of fear maybe a little bit of jitters how did you feel yeah had anxiousness i don't think there was fear we didn't have time to be scared we're too busy uh but uh, we had the responsibility after all like a fighter pilot has just himself to worry about. We had a crew of five and 18 paratroopers, and I had an extra passenger aboard as a military intelligence observer, who I kept in track with uh, after the war was over. Nika Walt McElroy. But uh, it was, uh, it were parlous times, as they would say. But uh, we were a great group, picked and trained beautifully. But our navigators were trained by the Royal Air Force, Pathfinders, and uh, all we were were chauffeurs for them, really. You had a $100,000 airplane with $500,000 worth of radar in it. So, you know, <laughs> yes, we were important, but the real important guy was the navigator. Sure. And the jump master, yep. To get you to where you need to be, to get the yes. Pathfinders where yeah. you need to be. Well, you earned your Pathfinder wings, and you earned them in combat. And uh, we were 20 cruisers, I say, and then a little after D-Day, 10 of us went down to Italy for the south of France invasion. We flew that, came back, and then we prepared for uh, Market Garden, which we all call Montgomery's mistake, but uh, that was a disaster for the British. Uh, the 82nd and the 101st did pretty well, held their lines. But it was, uh, the Arnhem operation was a disaster. That British Airborne Division got absolutely cut to ribbons. I think they started out with 12,000 in the division and they ended up 1,200. So a lot were taken prisoners, a lot were killed. But it was a mistake to go. Remember the term, a bridge too far? That's right. That was exactly it.
market spoofer. I can imagine you said I, we were too busy to be afraid, too busy yeah, to be scared. Yeah, you were anxious. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit of worry about whether you were going to do right with everything, but then you got so busy, it sort of became automatic. Sure. It was interesting. Yeah. Had a wonderful crew. Uh, big Stan Beer with my co-pilot. Uh, he was a great guy. We uh, trained together in the old 436, and when I could take my crew with me, I could take everybody with me but my navigator. And the navigator was supplied. It turned out I was lucky. I got a navigator who was from our group, but a different squadron. And uh, Carl Jones got the nickname G-Box Jones because the British called the Shoran the G-Box. Of course, that G-Box was this big and the scope and everything. Today, GPS is this big. It does everything. You know. Just follow the magenta line. That's what Really, yes, right. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about the flight into Normandy. Yeah. Describe how it went. And I want to talk about after the guys jumped out, what happened then? Well, let's first take you to the point where I got them out the airplane. Sure. We pulled up, and I was just about to rejoin the cloud bank. And my navigator said, don't move, you're perfect. So we dropped at about 35 to 40 seconds different than the flight commander in the left wing plane. And we found out later that we were within 99% perfect, all three of us, in drop zone T for tear. And that was just to the west of uh, San Mary Glees. And in pulling out, I dropped, once we got the shroud lines in and everything, I dropped on the deck and went out. My co-pilot said, you better lift your right wing or you're going to take the steeple off at the church in San Maragliese. So we did that. My navigator gave me a heading for Marcouf Island off Utah Beach. And I said, Marcouf Island to myself. Ooh, we got briefed that that was a nest of anti-aircraft guns. We went over Marcouf for 200 miles an hour and good old rattling goody bird. Not a gun fired at us. We found out later that the underwater demolition team for the Navy had gone in and spiked all the guns. So that was very happy. Then we pulled up and my navigator said, Skipper, come back here a minute. So I came back and I looked at his FBI scope and you could look like you could walk from England to the coast of France. All the dots on the radar from boats, unbelievable. And I said, wow, you started to get what the immensity of what we were involved in. So I said to my co-pilot, I said, Stan, you go back and take a look at this. We discussed it later and he said, that was our first realization of what an unbelievably large operation it was and the planning that went in. And it was all done within two years. It was amazing. And it was a success. Yeah, yeah. It was dicey on Omaha Beach for a bit. But all the other beaches seemed to be pretty well under control, Utah Beach particularly, even though the Navy dropped about a thousand yards south of there. Young Teddy Roosevelt was the assistant division commander, got out with his walking stick and said, the war starts here. And uh, he was uh, given the Medal of Honor and was slated to take over a division, had a heart attack and died. And uh, it's one of the few cases where a father, well, Teddy Roosevelt, and he, both got the Medal of Honor. Very rare. One of the aircraft that's here taking part in this whole exercise is That's All Brother. Yeah, I've been in it twice. Tell me where Tell me where you were when That's All Brother took off. I was home. I was home on the ground, probably having breakfast, steak and eggs, 
and uh, we've been through our debriefing, and I was ready to hit the sack, get a little sleep, and that's all brother led all the other C-47s with the cereals and everything in. And uh, they have their rightful place in history, just as uh, we do. But I'm the last living Pathfinder. Our colonel's gone, everybody's gone. Jake, Luck, everybody. It's a shame. We were quite that, an outfit. I was going to say, talk about the gravity of that, the sense that uh, you know, well, we're losing a lot of these veterans. Well, time will do it. You know, I'm 96 years old. I'm going to be 97 in July. You know, you can't live forever. Met a guy yesterday who was 104 who did 480 missions across the hump in China. Wow, if that isn't a war, I don't know what is. He had to fight both the Japanese and the weather. And I don't know which was worse. I didn't fly out in that part of the world, thank heavens. 75 years after, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to hear you tell yeah. these stories. How Ooh. significant is this, 75 years? It's later? very significant because it's almost the end of it. I'm not sure that there's going to be another, I don't think, the 80th. For instance, I wonder if there'll be anybody left who was actually involved in it. You just wonder. That's why I think the predominance of uh, the emphasis is going into the 75th, as it should, as it should. And uh, when I was asked to participate to the degree I am, I was more than glad to do it and honored, honored and humbled, yeah. To the folks at home, if you want them to take away anything from this story they're about to see about the C-47, about your service, what would you like them to leave with? Well, I think they use me as an example of what education should do. The kids today, and I know this because my son is a school teacher, and teaches history of the United States from 1900 to the modern day, and his study of World War I and World War II are thorough, and his graduates, they know. But I look at the average school kid, and you ask today through this country, what about D-Day? They say, what's D-Day? That's an embarrassment, I think, but it's part and parcel of what the country is. And what do you think the takeaway, and it's an interesting point, that the takeaway for those, for those students who might not know about D-Day, what do you want them to know about it? Well, I'd like them to understand what it meant. And it was the culmination of our effort to eliminate Hitler, especially from France, who had been an ally of this country for years, and uh, who uh, some people say we saved in World War I. And, uh, that was a mutual effort, just as World War II was a mutual effort. We had Canadian help, British help, French, Polish, and a lot of people don't realize it, but Brazil had a couple of regiments. It was a global conflict. Yeah, it really was. I want to ask you about this plane. Tell me, stepping back into the C-47 again after all this time, what's it like? Well, it's great to see it the way they were in my day, and of course, in my first day, my first ride in an airplane was in a DC-3 from New York to Boston for Thanksgiving in 1934. And uh, a different airplane, but they came out of the same line in Santa Monica. And I know, because when I got to Alliance, Nebraska as a second lieutenant, I was a co-pilot. We went down to the plant in Santa Monica, picked up new planes, picked them up because we only had four planes in the group, and eventually we had six airplanes in each squadron. Wow, that was great. And then eventually we got full complement. 
and we ended up with uh, a lot of airplanes in a group, four squadrons, and you had about 28 airplanes in each squadron. It was quite a group. There were a lot of C-47s went across D-Day. I think the figure was close to 445 C-47s led by that's all brother. And uh, we only had 20 airplanes go in ahead of them in the Pathfinders. But we did our job and they did their job. And it wasn't the fault of really ours, but the Germans had flooded the Murder Red River. And it was, instead of being a little country stream, spread out over the fields and was hidden because of the grass. Didn't know the water was there. And they've taken oblique photo reconnaissance, they would have spotted it, but they took directly 90 degree verticals. That was a mistake. But I'd like to ask your perspective on, on the aircraft, on the C-47 DC-3, looking at all that it accomplished through history, I think oh, you could make it. a marvelous airplane. It made history because, as I say, it was the first commercial transport that made air transportation economically feasible and started an industry that today is unbelievable. But it also, for pilots, was a very forgiving airplane. It was good flying on weather. It held ice very well. It carried troopers. It would carry a load. It did a lot. It was a workhorse real work was. And uh, as I say, they ought to make one in solid gold and put it on a mountain somewhere in honor of uh, Donald Douglas. And I have the fortunate luck of flying two wars. I flew two wars in Douglas airplanes and Pratt Whitney engines. And I felt very lucky. That's quite the testimonial right there. Yeah, right. Douglas and Pratt and Whitney yeah. right there. Some people will say that there's an emotional attachment between a pilot and their airplane. You oh, I think there is. is. Oh, I think there is. After you get to fly the same airplane for a while and it becomes yours to the point where you can eventually put your name or whatever tag on it. In Pathfinders, we couldn't do that. Couldn't even put our names under the windows. No. Tail number and eventually a large number in the front. That was all that was allowed. And uh, did you still have a name for your airplane, or was I there... did in Korea, Sweet Miss Lillian, and she's in the Air Museum in Riverside at Marchfield now. And uh, that's a whole nother story. They had a director, curator of the museum, who prostituted the airplane, and uh, he got fired. And they promised me that a year from now, or then, it was two months ago that they'd have a guy uh, who'd do it according to the pictures we left him of what it looked like. So I'm looking forward to going back there next year and taking a look at Sweet Miss Lillian again. And you're going to be in Normandy on June 6, 2019. Yeah. Have you been to Normandy before? In 1960 I went to Normandy, yes. And the museum at St. Mary Glees hadn't even been built. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now they've got a museum there, and I can't wait to go there because I understand one wing is on nothing but the Pathfinders. They have pictures of all 20 crews and uh, some memorabilia. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I was going to say, take me uh, what you envision in your mind when you arrive for this anniversary. Well, I don't want to have any really preconceived ideas, but you can't help but remember what happened originally, and then on your last visit, it's going to be interesting to see the differences and the changes. I'm really looking forward to it. 
and it's going to be exciting. We're coming home through Paris, which uh, is going to be fun. My stepmother was in Paris for years as the editor of the Harper's, British Harper's Bazaar, and she was in the fashion world, and she bought a little, what she called her moulin, a little mill down in the country, which she eventually uh, turned into a lovely little country house. Used to spend weekends down there. The French outside of Paris, I should say, love the Americans. And I've been fortunate the French decorated me with the Legion of Honor. And uh, I'm going to wear that medal with pride over there in France. And uh, I'm looking forward to it because there'll be some others too. And I've heard, I don't know if it's true, that the President of the United States and the President of France are going to be there. And they're going to have World War II veterans on the stage with the President. I hope it doesn't get too messed up with the Secret Service and everything. Sure. And I imagine you're going to visit the, the cemetery there near Omaha. Absolutely. Beach. There's a big ceremony going to be there on June 6th, right at the cemetery, which is where the old strip used to be. Yeah. I'd like for you to share your thoughts about the sacrifice of oh, those boy. who did not survive. There are 9,200 crosses and stars of David in that cemetery. And uh, it probably bring tears to my eyes to go there. I'm a relatively sentimental human being, but I have tremendous feeling. Although we were very fortunate in Pathfinders, we didn't lose a person in our unit. One plane ditched before it got there, being shot down by the Germans off the Channel Islands. But they stepped off with wet feet onto a British Corvette, or a Canadian Corvette, with the paratroopers. And those poor paratroopers had to go ashore on an LST. <laughs> I'm sure they got plenty of ribbing from their buddies, but they got into combat and our boys eventually came home, had quite a story to tell. They say the food aboard British naval vessels was horrible. I remember that story. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a sentimental human being myself and one of the things that's occurred to me is that the, this aircraft is very remarkable for its longevity. Oh, yeah. And in a way, it's almost as if they hung in there to well, do this one last flight. Do you think there's anything to that? Oh, sure. I think they built them to last, not realizing how long they would last. Because today, you know, they build so-called with planned obsolescence. I don't think in those days they knew how to spell it. Boy. But boy, when you think about it, there's still Ford Trimotors flying, for God's sakes. Old Tin Lizzie's, as they call it. Noisy God. But the Goonie Bird, as it got termed a Dakota because of the British, uh, unique aeroplane, has its own place in history and it should be very well honored by every country. Gosh, 28 countries who flew them in the war. Unbelievable. And the Germans even copied it and the Russians copied it down to the rivets even. Yeah. If there was a mistake in the place that they got, they built the mistake in. I mean, no originality at all. What does it mean to you when you hear those Pratt & Whitney engines fire up? Oh yeah, it's great. And yet, you know, some of the airlines had bright engines in them. And uh, it made a different sound, it made a different sound. But the Pratt & Whitney's, I just swear by Pratt & Whitney, I love them. Describe that sound, what, what, what is that? Well, it's a rumble. And uh, it's just eventually, it's like music, really. 
and you synchronize the propellers so it's not waving at you <laughs> in your ear, and you can just sit there, set the automatic pilot, and cruise. Not over Connecticut. Connecticut is notoriously bumpy air anyway. In the old days, there used to be the tobacco fields, you remember? They had tobacco made one of the headquarters of cigar wrap. Well, they're all out of business today. It was bumpy yesterday. We were flying a formation yesterday, and uh, it was bumpy. It was bumpy. I heard you say earlier that you had your magnetos shot out. Was that, did I get that right? What ha Tell me about that. Wing chip, the only two hits we got from anything bigger than the 25 caliber machine pistol was 27 millimeter blew the right wing tip left wing tip off and hit my magnetos sprayed my co-pilot with metal and glass and crap and he had his goggles and his helmet and everything off he brushed himself off and we teased him about that too but uh, couldn't turn the engines off when we landed the normal way there were no mags so I had to starve the engines by cutting off the gas so I wrote the history of our mission in Form 1, and they were all yelling at me, come on, Dave, let's go, let's go. Want to get the debriefing, because they heard that there was a little jigger of I.W. Harper for everybody at the debriefing. <laughs> a little shot of rye whiskey wouldn't have hurt. It happened to be very tasty of it, I'm sure. <laughs> this was over Holland, or was this during... D-Day. This was on D-Day. Oh, D -Day. so you were shot at that, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Describe to me that, that, that sense of they're shooting at us. The only mission that I ever flew where they didn't shoot at us was the south of France. And uh, I don't know why that was always referred to as the Champagne Campaign. And uh, they just sent us to places where nobody was shooting at us. And they dropped the paratroopers and then the resupply, the boys who had pararacks dropped pararacks filled with champagne. So they called it the Champagne Campaign. But Holland, Holland was an entirely different deal. Yeah. I took the 316 troop carrier, pathfinded them in to Nijmegen and Grave for the 82nd Airborne. And uh, I did four missions in there and then one special single ship mission, air evac, take out very badly wounded. And I took them directly from Nijmegen Strip to uh, British General Hospital, American General Hospital in England. One of the things this airplane is legendary for is its ability to take punishment and keep on oh, flying. Man. Unbelievable. Uh, I've seen them beaten on by hail, ice, anti-aircraft. Very tough to bring down. But hit them in the right place and they fire fast. I lost a very good friend, Bobby Stoddard, a New Yorker who I knew. And he held his plane and got a silver star posthumously. He held the plane until his parachutists got out. This was in Holland. And he held the plane until they all got out. Boom, he went in. But uh, it could take tremendous punishment normally. Unbelievably well built. And I don't think when they originally started it out as a transport, they envisioned a military airplane at all. But they did, they restressed the wings and they put these bucket seats and cleaned out the air, took this insulation off a lot of them. It made them noisy, sure. But most of the paratroopers, by the time I was at a thousand feet, they were trying to get to sleep, you know. And then the word would come, stand up and hook up. 
and that wire that goes down the center of the roof snap on and check all the way to the door. And my navigator was pretty smart, G-Box. He anticipated the time differential in seconds of when he'd tell me to turn the, flip the little green light for the jump, time it would take me to flip the flitch, time it would take them to get the real. Went out right on the numbers, right on the numbers. He was unique that way. I lost track of him after the war after I came back from Korea, as a matter of fact, in 52. And uh, I don't know what happened to Doherty. I kept track of Sam Carley, went to work for Brooks Brothers in New York selling shirts. I used to buy shirts and socks. <laughs> yeah. If you had it to do over again and they gave you a chance to fly any other airplane, a P-51 Mustang, a B-17, a B-29, anything else in the inventory, would you take it? No. Not with what I know. I still think I'd do it in this. Yeah. Good old Goonie Bird. No. Saved my life too many times. And not necessarily because of my proficiency either. <laughs> no. Just a tremendously great built and forgiving aircraft. It could get you in trouble if you didn't watch yourself. But uh, if you were trained in a C-47 by a proficient pilot, by the time you were checked out as a first pilot in a C-47, you should be able to handle them. And I flew a lot of ice in England and out of Europe, and uh, they carried ice and those pumps on the wings. He had to learn how to use them, but it's all part of the learning. I'm a pilot myself, but I've never flown anything like this. Yeah. If you're, give me a quick, what are the two or three things maybe that are you would most want me to know before I fly this for the first time? Well, one, I'd want you to basically know what your airplane's capabilities were. And then I'd want you to know never to exceed your own, because those two things will keep you alive. And then there is, whether you believe it or not, there is a modicum of luck involved in almost anything in life. But I have a feeling in flying, there's a little extra dollop of it because I've known pilots that got out of unbelievable scrapes and you have to attribute it to luck. Yeah. So is it rather be lucky than good? That's, uh, in a lot of ways, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it doesn't hurt to be good too. <laughs> But in terms of flying it, I was thinking, is it just like any other tailwheel of its no, similar no, size? No, no, I remember my first time in a tricycle gear, I felt strange not having a tail rear lock to taxi with and everything. Oh, I think tail draggers have a definite place, but uh, I'm more modern now, tricycle gear man. <laughs> But any, any quirks that stand out? Anything that makes No, this... you have to be a little more careful taxiing in a tail dragger. In this one in particular? The wind will swing you around unless you watch what you're doing. But uh, I wouldn't want to fly a single engine tail dragger for them. That would be a little difficult. The Spitfires and the Hurricanes. And, uh, just funny that way. C-47, this is a... Jug. The Jug? The big Jug. The Republic, yeah. Oh, yeah. P-47. The P-47 oh, yeah, yeah. turned out to be one hell of a tough airplane. Boy, yeah. became a great dive bomber. Yeah. 
did you have a lot of interaction with the paratroopers who you flew before the flight? Were yes. you all in the same place? Yeah, we were. And the uh, jump master and the uh, second in command lived in the same Nissan hut with me. And our enlisted men were all bunked in. Yeah, it was a very close, friendly group. We knew the names of their daughters and wives and stuff. It was a unique situation because in the other troop carrier organizations, they didn't have that opportunity. And uh, it couldn't be done on the basis of the whole troop carrier command. It had to be done on the basis of a small thing. Our colonel realized that. He worked it out with General Gavin of the 82nd and General Max Taylor of the 101st that this was what was going to happen. And uh, my parachute wings that I wear uh, on my blue uniform were put on by General Gavin when he heard that the aircraft commanders of Normandy had dropped with the stick that they were dropping in combat. He came and he pinned the bug on us with his thumb with some exertion on sure. my head. Great officer. And the paratroopers you dropped in Normandy as a pathfinder, they were 82nd or 101st? Or they were mix? the 507th Parachute Infantry assigned to the 82nd because the regiment that would normally have dropped, the 504, had been beaten up pretty badly in Anzio, down in Italy. And they were refitting and re-equipping, and they had some guys fly with us who were enlisted men who volunteered to fly with the Pathfinders as perimeter guards. I had four of them on my airplane. And uh, they took uh, quite a beating, the boys, once they got on the ground. But listen, they did their job. They kept and broke the line right across the Sherbrooke Peninsula. And did you say was... anything to them before they jumped? Oh yeah, Please I have jump. a picture of, I don't know if you've got one, but the picture of us in front of the airplane. Tell me about that picture. Well, the picture was taken about two hours before we took off. And they'd all been briefed, everybody knew everybody else. And uh, we stood for a picture or kneeled for a picture. You can tell I'm, my mustache wasn't quite matured. But Stan Beer with my big co-pilot, Doherty, Carly, my radio operator, G-Box Jones in the door, and Walt McElroy, the intelligence officer there. That's Charlie Ames over there, brand new second lieutenant out of West Point. And that's McGill, who was the stick commander, broke both ankles landing in Normandy and got evacuated eventually. But the rest of them, uh, I don't know how many lived or died, but I know that Raleigh Duff, who was the NCO commanding, dropped in Moscow on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, and the Russians wouldn't let him pack his own chute, and it feathered. This picture, did you ever think, did you ever wonder who was going to make it home? Yes, but I didn't have time to worry about it. I couldn't. If I'd have gotten that into my mind, other things that were more important would have been squeezed out. I couldn't afford to let myself do that. But and, looking back at this picture, I mean, oh, you're yeah. saying it's hard to know who, who lived and who yeah. didn't live. Yeah. What does that feel like for you? Well, I'm the only one that I know of who's still alive in that picture. It's a great shot, though. Yeah, it is. And there are 14, and there were 20 crews. They were all photographed different, you know, ways. Essentially the same idea. I wouldn't knock your mustache. It's actually pretty uh Well, pretty it, sharp developed. There. it developed a little later. 
after Holland, it got to the point where you could see it in daylight, you know. Okay. <laughs> a little more mature, a little, a little wiser. More mature, yeah, right. A little more experience. Yeah. After Korea, I must say, I had a real bush. And uh, my wife said, that's got to go. And I said, I guess it would, you know. It was part of the picture, you know. That's a look? Yeah. That's when was the last time you, have, you flew a C-47? Yesterday. You were actually... <laughs> No, I didn't actually oh. fly one, but I flew in one last year. The time I last flew a C-47, oh, that would be, I would think, 1951, maybe. Yeah, when I flew my dad from Washington up to Westover, he was going over to join Eisenhower's uh, at NATO com headquarters. And uh, I flew my dad from Washington up to Westover in a C-53, but it was different seats. Nice, comfortable. They had a desk and a couch, and you know, one of the VIP C-53s of the Washington flight. Did you know when you shut the engines down that that was going to be the last time? No, no. you never know when the last time is. Just Which, in a way, is probably a good good idea. Hey, let me ask you, what was the name of the, the? You went to high school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. What was the name of the high school again? It was... No, that was a beginning school. It was oh, beginning of, school. Yeah. It was elementary school. Oh, yeah. St. Bernard's School. Started the first grade and ended at the sixth. Then I went to boarding school. My dad was sent out by the bank to sell RKO to somebody. And in 1938, he sold it to Howard Hughes. And we came back east in 1938. I went to the Hill School in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Graduated from there in 41 and then went to work for the Canadian Aviation Bureau, uh, offices in the Wall of Historia in New York, who took Americans who couldn't qualify for our Air Force by eyesight or other reasons, and they were going to Canada to train, or a couple of schools in this country that trained them under contract. Spartan School of Aviation in Kansas was one. There was one in uh, Parks, Air College in East St. Louis, Illinois, I think was another. But we sent quite a few numbers of boys over to fly in Europe and in different outfits. I ran across some. I flew one mission with the Wellingtons over the Bay of Biscay as a guest of a guy who I'd known. He was a second lieutenant in the Air Force. He'd been a sergeant pilot, but we did away with our sergeant pilots right after Pearl Harbor. and. Uh, he was a second lieutenant back with his RAF outfit. And he took me on a ride down over the Bay of Biscay. In the front of the Bombay, they had this monster searchlight called a Lee light. And they'd get a radar contact on a submarine conning tower. They'd light the light on, and then they'd go in and drop a bomb on them or a depth charge. It was an exciting evening. But I saw a whole other side of the war. <laughs> sure. And you ended up flying constellations, you said, in the airlines, correct? Yeah. Which airline did you fly for? American Overseas, which during World War, before World War One or two, had been American export. It was the airline extension of a steamship line. And uh, the government thought that Pan Am should have a little competition. So they gave them three flying boats, big Boeing flying boats. And they flew to Lisbon, and uh, they flew to England, and they flew to... Uh, Northern Ireland, but then when the war uh, started for us, they turned it in uh, after the war to American Overseas Airlines, and we flew from LaGuardia Field 
to Frankfurt, Germany, and then home through Copenhagen, because Pan Am had a lock on Paris. But it was made us pissed us off because <laughs> you go to Copenhagen, and if the winds were bad, you had to land in Iceland. Yeah, Reykjavik, and uh, wanted to avoid Iceland if you could. There's a few times I'd fly nonstop from Copenhagen all the way to Goose Bay, Labrador. That was quite a long flight. Yeah, Connie boring holes in the sky. You know, it wasn't the fastest, but it was a beautifully designed airplane. God, there wasn't a straight line on it. It looked everywhere. I want, to, I want to take you back to D-Day one more time, and I, I'm researching, pulling some pieces together. I pulled up Eisenhower's Order of the Day, June 6, 1944. Did, yeah, you, did you hear it before uh, or read it before you took off? Yes. What do you think of when you, read, when you revisit those words, soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force? Yeah, very forthright, yeah. You were about it's to embark a on a great crusade. Yeah toward which we have strived these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. Yeah, it was translated into 38 different languages, and even the Russians approved of it, so <laughs> couldn't have been all that bad. <laughs> what did it mean to you? It what meant, it personally, it was like a prayer, really, yeah. And I remember that Franklin Roosevelt did have a prayer, which I didn't see until about two to three days after D-Day. By that time, they had my airplane flying again. And uh, we became Eisenhower's little airline to the beachhead in Normandy, that strip. We flew one plane a day, and uh, you'd leave North Hold at 8 in the morning with fighter escort, leave the beachhead at 8 at night, fighter escort coming back. And the fighter escort were all the Poles who were based at North Hold. And they'd entertain, occasionally they'd have what they had a night out, which the British called it, dining in. And boy, they'd drank their vodka and their sliver. They were great guys. They had a greatest record in the Battle of Britain of any squadron, those Poles, well. They had a chance, they'd go in, and they were over England, they knew they could bail out, they'd go in and use the propeller of their airplane, chop the tail off the Germans. Oh, they were unbelievable. But they had wives, mothers, and children, prisoners over there, you know. They were, uh, they were tough boys, I tell you. But they entertained well. Dave, I appreciate you telling us these stories. This is amazing to get a chance to meet you and talk about it. Thank you for, for doing this. Well, it's great, it. great fun for me. It brings back a lot that you don't often think about, you yeah. know, and you key that, which is wonderful to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you, Sherry, just being so forthright and, and going through those memories, I'm sure it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's inspiring for me as a, as a history buff and an aviation buff. Well, that's great. I'm glad. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, David, fascinating guy there. It's like, I, you know, as we fly around in our Cessnas and our Moonies and stuff like that, to imagine what those guys went through, it's, it's, it's incredible. Absolutely. And, you know, they were just kids back then, Ian. They yep. were just out of their teenage years, and they had so much riding on their shoulders. 
And so many of them didn't make it home. And, you know, you can tell that affected a lot of the pilots and a lot of the other military members. But we're very thankful for what they did. And, you know, we get a chance. uh, It's been a long time, but 75 years later, this is a pretty big celebration. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're also on iTunes at the Sporties Takeoff app and soon to be on Spotify, if not there already. All right, cool. We'll see you next time, David. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.